Welcome to Swift Unscripted. Swift Podcast gives you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. Here we are in Kansas City at the Swift headquarters, um, and we are recording a live podcast today with Professor Elizabeth B. Kozleski. Elizabeth chairs the special education program at the University of Kansas. She is recognized for her work theorizing systems change for equity, inclusive education, and professional learning for urban schools. She's well recognized nationally and internationally. Her latest book is titled Ability, Equity, and Culture, Sustaining Inclusive Urban Education Reform. Her many awards include the UNESCO Chair in Inclusive International Research, the Ted Merrill Award for her leadership in special education, teacher education. Elizabeth's research interests include analyses of models of systems change in urban and large school systems, examining how teachers learn in practice in complex, diverse school settings, researching multicultural educational practices in the classroom, improved student learning, and the impact of professional learning schools on student and teacher learning. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks. <laughs> um, you, had, you are involved in quite an accomplished career with these issues, and I'm wondering if you could give us a little historical perspective. How did you become interested in issues of inequality in our schools? So I came back to the United States from um, a high school experience overseas for ninth, 10th and 11th grade and found myself in Alexandria, Virginia at Mount Vernon Wait a minute, school. you came back? You were a 9th, 10th, and 11th grader? In over... In okay, overseas. so when you were in 9th, 10th, and 11th mm -hmm. grade, you were overseas, mm -hmm. all right. Yep. And I came back to the United States and um, to my my uh, senior year of high school and I went to an American high school for the first time in Alexandria, Virginia in 1968 uh, at the time that Mount Vernon High School was desegregating and had its first class of students who were African American come to Mount Vernon High School. And I'd been overseas, I'd been in Europe, I'd been in places where there were lots of different kinds of people all together doing things together, and the idea that I would be in a place where some people hadn't been and all of a sudden were being allowed in, but really, not really, because they were at the end of the hall and they seemed to just be clustered together and nobody in the school seemed to know how to greet them or welcome them, kind of began this whole idea of, for me, about what does it mean to belong and who's in and who's out. And um, I went on to my undergraduate and master's degree program in the area of children with disabilities and became really interested in the notions of disability and who belongs because while I was getting my degree, I was working in a preschool setting uh, with children who had all kinds of troubles and then children who seemed to just blossom in the preschool setting and I was interested in why was that? Why was that? How did that happen? And I didn't really think that it was psychological. I was wondering about the cultural 
matches and mismatches between school and what kids brought to school. So that began my quest. Wow. Uh, that's why I love doing these podcasts, is finding <laughs> out things about people that you wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity. So let's go back. So where did you grow up? So I grew up all over the world. My dad was okay. in the military. Okay. I was born in Tokyo, Japan. Okay. So was there ever a time before ninth grade that you were educated in the United States? Uh, before my high school year. Before your my, high school my, year? My yep. senior year. Yes. I went to American schools. Right before in, your senior year. I went to American schools in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, but those were in two different states, Washington State and then Florida. Mm-hmm. Then I went to another school in Alexandria, Virginia, a private girls' school, and then uh, on to Europe and Copenhagen International mm-hmm. High School. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you came back for your senior year, and mm-hmm. you really started to ask some serious questions about the way the world works yeah. and the way people are welcomed and have yeah. a sense of belonging, and then that launched your undergraduate work. Yeah. One of my, one of my other really compelling um, high school experiences was meeting John Lewis, who um, was take on world travels. I met him in Copenhagen on world travels advocating for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Oh, wow. That yeah. happened to And I was the newspaper journalist for our high school newspaper who got to interview him and that was a very transformative moment for me um, thinking about rights and civil rights and social justice and mm-hmm. all of those mm-hmm. things so and then you that you held on to that mm-hmm. and sort of shaped mm-hmm. who you are today or who you yeah. became yep. what a great story um, so so what are you doing now how do you spend, like, what is what is a, a week in the life of Elizabeth Kozleski look like in yeah. promoting yeah. schools where all students feel welcome? Well, um, so... Belong? Yeah. So one of my big ideas is that what happens at universities, on university campuses, how things are structured and the experiences that students have are extremely transformative in how they understand the world. So how, how professors get together and design curriculum and make decisions about um, whether or not students will take all their courses in one program or whether they will learn broadly across an entire university and be influenced by lots of different ideas seems to me to be a fundamental issue that we have to think about as we design and develop te- not only teacher education programs, but um, programs that develop our future researchers, our future policymakers. So I spend a lot of time right now because I'm the chair of the special ed program at uh, the special ed department at the University of Kansas, thinking about how to challenge my faculty and how to challenge our student body about how we're organized in the ways that we create spaces for people to entertain these ideas that challenge the narratives that they grew up with and cause them to think differently about them. So these are things that I do. Search for funding for the, um, the Seesaw Festival that our doctoral students have now put on for two years that's all about films from around the world where difference and is explored from 
um, various cultural and, and um, national perspectives and where we look at things like um, what does it mean to be a Syrian refugee in Germany? Things that are of today, of the moment. And our students have organized this so it happens inside the, the community facilities of the city of Lawrence, where the University of Kansas is um, uh, home. And um, our, communi our communities get involved in these activities with students who most likely when they graduate will not stay in Lawrence but will go elsewhere but they now have this sense of how do you build an agenda with community members and families and children who come to these movies because the movies are also at the public library mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. just thinking about how are the all of the ways that we can educate one another to engage in these conversations and then find ways and spaces to continue to have them and in the process of doing that, that transforms the nature of the kinds of, of questions that our students want to answer, the nature of the kinds of questions that our faculty want to answer, and then it causes us to ask questions like, why are we the Department of Special Ed? Shouldn't we be something else? <laughs> or um, why are we publishing all of our books, or all of our books and chapters for this audience, and what happened about that audience? So. As the chair, my job is to spark conversation and to get people to see who we are and who we might be. So that's the work that I do on an ongoing basis. And um, in addition to that, every other week I get to go down, down the street to one of the middle schools in Lawrence and spend time with teachers and the principal there um, talking to them about how they organize school and what they're thinking about, how we can provide support to them. And there's a group of faculty members who have been doing that with me for a couple of years, and it's becoming more and more of a passion for and a site for where we're preparing our teachers. So what, what is happening in that middle school? All kinds of things are happening in that middle school. Um, uh, one of the big things that's happening is that the seventh grade team... Um, and the special education department have decided to move together and to practice together and to cross back and forth across their roles and to provide deeper and richer support for kids with disabilities in the general ed program. And that's creating excitement. And now the sixth grade team wants to join and we've got our eyes on the eighth grade team. And so it's a more of an organic rather than a specific approach like SWIFT has to mm -hmm. transforming schools, but we're using the FIA to okay. help us um, provide data snapshots back to the school staff. Um, all right, so um, you mentioned the FIA. Mm -hmm. and the, the FIA stands for? The Fidelity Integration Assessment. And tell me a little bit about how the school used the FIA. Well, just to assess what they're doing now currently with um, supporting all their learners in their school, mm -hmm. how they're organized, how teachers operate, what are the kinds of um, techniques that they use in the classroom, and that allows us to sit and look at what's working and not working, and it becomes a jumping-off place for planning priorities, identifying priorities, and moving ahead mm -hmm. with changes. So it's been a helpful tool? It's a helpful tool. It creates a wonderful, rich conversation about 
what this should look like and what they're doing. And, uh-huh. and it's implementing a form of, of uh, MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support, that focus m- mostly on the prevention of behavior problems. Um, and it's done in a three-tiered model. So we have the same system as an M- MTSS model. So all of these things are fitting together really well. Uh-huh. And let me just um, do a little commercial break here. So if this audience, if you are interested in accessing the Fidelity Integrity Assessment, you can go to swiftschools.org and look on the Swift shelf and you will find the FIA tool. If you're looking at the screen, it's on your left. <laughs> and um, also lots of resources on MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support that Elizabeth just mentioned. So, okay, back to the interview. That was our commercial break. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm fascinated by the work in the middle school. That yeah. must be something that sort of keeps you... Well, I love to do it. So right. It's really Motivated, hard. alive, passionate. Yeah. Really hard to work in a world of adults when your real goal is life in schools without going to schools and being in schools and talking to kids and being with kids and listening to them tell you about their life and then watching them in classrooms. All of that makes the work that we do that surrounds that effort all the more meaningful. Oh, I hear you. I feel the same way. Um, So what are some of the most promising practices that you're you're seeing in our schools or you're learning about or you're promoting that, that really results in um, all meaning all inclusive equity-based education. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we've become really convinced of in the work that we've done, not only in this professional learning school, but in schools that we, we worked in um, across Kansas, and Kansas is, I've only been in Kansas for four years, so This is also building on my experiences in Arizona and Colorado. Is that while the most important work that happens in schools around learning is the work that teachers and students do, teachers and students live inside of an institutional structure. And that structure pushes them to do certain kinds of things in certain kinds of ways. And those processes and those expectations and those norms aren't always the healthiest and most effective for the kinds of students that show up in school in a particular neighborhood or community, nor are they necessarily the best way for teachers to begin to examine their own identities and their own biases and how they deal with students that are unfamiliar with them, uh, unfamiliar to them or Uh, present behaviors or ways of learning that the teachers are unfamiliar with. For a long time in American schools, I think the teaching force thought about themselves as being culture West, that there was a culture in America and that their job was to help students really conform to a, a unitary culture. And as diversity has become more and more the way that Americans live their lives in community, schools have been um, slow, I think, to think about what it means to teach in diverse ways, not only about the way that children think, but the way that they make meaning of the tools that we give them. 
um, the importance that we place on text over video or potentially the importance that we place on uh, recitation over questioning or storytelling over some other form. But these, these tools, and I'm, call, I'm calling them tools on purpose because they actually help to shape the way that people see the world. Mm-hmm. And we're not always conscious of the fact that what these tools shape what we, what we do. And teachers receive curriculum that's formatted in particular ways that is based on not so powerful evidence that that's the best way that children learn particular material. So my interest has been in helping teachers and principals, school leaders, uh, um, and coaches really engage in serious, what I call culturally responsive coaching, around what is it that we're asking our students to do and how are they, what's the data that tells us that what they're doing um, is working for the students and producing learning that's powerful and efficient for the students and keeps them engaged throughout their school careers. So that's most of the work that I'm doing now is trying to get us not only to understand that it's important to have coherence and alignment in the system, but it's also important to demand that the system asks questions about what what students should know and how they What are some examples of those questions that might be asked? You know, who's benefiting from the way that things are now? So you take a classroom and ask, you know, of all of the students, the 30 kids in this classroom, who's benefiting from what's going on right now and who's not? And what does that say about, you know, is there something about the students that aren't benefiting that we could begin to think about? Is there something here that we should alter culturally for this group of kids? Or in altering that, will it actually make learning better for all of the kids? Um, Are we teaching one way of entering the curriculum or are there multiple opportunities? And once we begin to ask that question, that's a universal design for learning question, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, do, how, do, how do we build ramps into the curriculum so that everybody can learn? Right. That's a, I, love, I love that question. Yeah. How do we build ramps into the curriculum so everyone yeah. can learn? Um, if I uh, was to walk into a classroom where, where everything's in place, where every child really truly has access to learning and is able to demonstrate and it's joy-filled and and the yeah. teacher's feeling confident. What would I see? What, how, how might that class look different from a class where those uh, yeah. practices aren't in place? Well, SWIFT did some wonderful work on this when they went to the knowledge, um, development, the sites. knowledge yeah. development sites in the first year that SWIFT was funded. And they saw, they saw schools where a lot of joyful learning was, was happening. I did not go on those site visits, but... One of the places that I'm thinking about right now is my friend, um, Dr. Joetta Gonzalez, who is now an associate superintendent of the Nevada, of the Reno, uh, Nevada public school system, was a principal in Arizona, and she heard about the Equity Assistance Center that I um, helped to form with Alfredo Artiles, and she called me up one day and said, I found you on the web, would you come visit my school? (laughs) So I went to visit her school, and I said, Will you show me around your school? Will you show me what's in your classrooms? Let's let's take a walk. Let's not sit in your office. And so we walk through her her school and she would open up doors and 
we'd go into these classrooms and there were students busy learning in all parts of the classroom and the teacher wasn't in the middle of the classroom telling all of the kids what to do. The teacher was engaged in one group with one group of students while other students who were busy doing other kinds mm -hmm, of engaged mm -hmm. activity and when we walked up and talked to them about what they were doing and why they were doing it and what it was for and what they were going to learn, they actually knew the answers to those questions. <laughs> and when I noticed that maybe one student was supporting another student or another a student was um, maybe not writing with a, a, a pen but actually um, dictating into a machine, I might, I might stop and say, well, tell me what you're doing and... How is that working for you? And what happens when you write instead of talk? And the students were able to articulate that. And they were, they were very excited about being there. Joetta knew almost every child's name in the whole school, and she had 800 kids in that building. Wow. So here was a strong um, curriculum-based principal who understood um, how to connect with her kids, but her teachers loved her just the way kids love their principals often in, in uh, elementary schools I can I'm the like imagining the scene right now so schools like this exist and a huge part of it is the notion that teachers and children are individuals and they make meaning of the curriculum because of who they are not because somebody said they have to be on page 10 at such and such a time on September 19th um and figuring out how we take the received curriculum and actually make, make it meaningful. This, this school that Joetta introduced me to was in one of the most, what was, one, was in one of the areas in Phoenix, Arizona with the highest crime rate. But we turned it into a professional development school hmm. and we had young, young um, teacher educators or teacher candidates coming to that school to learn and we, made it a site where we offered courses um, there, and it became a very vibrant exchange between. Is it still a learning still, site today? Mm -hmm. That's, that's <coughs> very, very cool. exciting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's, um, I did actually visit most of the knowledge development sites, and, um, and I think one of the aspects of those sites that just help those schools grow and sustain their work was their connections to higher education and you know they were being used as learning sites yeah. not just for the swift center but yeah. for higher education universities close by um if you had to pick sort of pick if you had to pick one piece of advice that you would tell a teacher just a general education classroom teacher to to examine or change the way that they're teaching to make their classroom more equity-based, culturally competent, welcoming, what would it be? Well, I, gosh, I always believe that everything starts with the teacher, yeah. you know, knowing his or her, herself and asking themselves how they impose their identity and their sense of culture on what's going on in the classroom and then ask themselves the question about whether or not what they impose and the rules that they create and the expectations that they have um, 
are things that are tools that their students actually can make meaning of and to be willing to renegotiate cultural the cultural exchange between the teacher and the student. What a great answer. I honestly, I was thinking, what? Because I don't know how you're going to answer it. And you answered it in a way that sort of forces an internal exploration versus the external doing of something. So you're not saying, well, I don't, you're not, you're, <laughs> anyways, that's, that's so, so fascinating yeah. and that makes so much sense. I had a really good friend. I um, Actually, I have a really good friend who, who reminds me on a pretty regular basis that Teaching doesn't require a classroom, and it doesn't require textbooks, and it doesn't require chalkboards or iPads or whatever. Teaching is an exchange of information between two people in, what, in which both people end up being the guides. And if you're on a desert island someplace, you can still, you can still teach and you can still learn. And if you remember that, then what you craft in your own classrooms with the students that you have um, becomes a manifestation of like local sourcing. You know, kids come to that place from the community in which they live and the job of teachers is to value and appreciate and grow that. Data is really important because you need to know how well you're doing it. tools that you get from books and from other teachers and from sharing your craft is really important but the first thing is you've got to remember that the teacher herself or himself is actually teaching themselves they are teaching who they are the kids can see everything that you do and they're learning from the human being that you are powerful words of wisdom right there yeah all right last question um uh, what what are the newest topics, innovations you uh, yeah. um, are on the forefront of yeah. this work that's going to keep moving this, that moving us all forward? Well, a huge thing that I'm thinking about right now is what does it really mean to scale? Ah. To scale and sustain. So that's, yes. a, that's something that I'm, I'm working on because there's danger in scaling and, sustain, and trying to scale a thing as if Thai detergent will work the same way everywhere, right? Um, <laughs> good and, analogy. And so the problem is, how do you take a set of things that we've learned in particular contexts and then understand what it is about them that has saliency in other contexts that we want to move them to? We haven't really even done a good job in the United States of figuring out with our indigenous uh, populations and with people um, with African Americans who came here because of because of slavery, how to reposition and reorient ourselves in those communities to understand how those communities see themselves and then what that means about what an education is for them. We're we're not we're not there yet, and I see us running the danger of superimposing the idea that there should be one. Equity doesn't mean one way for everyone. It means the best way for all. Right. And that's turning that around and thinking then about what that means to scale that idea 
and sustain that's it. That's a hard. Yeah. That's a very hard thing. <sighs> We've got a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, this was this was a beautiful conversation. SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs. I'm Mary Shu. I was thrilled to have this time with Elizabeth Kozlowski today. And if you want to learn more about SWIFT Center, just go to swiftschools.org. There's plenty of resources that should uh, help you in your efforts to create inclusive, equity-based education. Thanks for listening. <laughs>